So thank you for all your practice up to this point and to the efforts you've been putting in throughout to maintain a safe space. And um, up until this point, we've been presenting you with a whole variety of tools to inwardly connect with, process, be with your internal experience in its different shapes and forms. We've been talking about uh, or offer tools that are about concentration, using the breath, using sounds, using uh, body sensations. We've talked about uh, mindfulness practice, especially using the techniques of Rain meta practice, uh, walking meditation. We've done uh, spacious mind awareness in our lying down meditation today. And um, there's been other tools. So um, this marks the point in the retreat where we're going to begin to focus our efforts outwards instead of intra or internally focused, we're going to start focusing uh, the spiritual practices that allow us to connect and to um, heal in community. So my talk is going to be introducing some of the themes that Probably even more themes that will then will come into play tomorrow, but just some ideas for you to bear in mind, not just for um, the work we do tomorrow, but also just themes you might want to explore uh, that relate to healing um, after this retreat. So human beings need other human beings. As we've talked, uh, we are a social species and we are meant to process our emotions in empathetic relationship with others. The Buddha, when he was asked by Ananda if Spiritual community and wise friends was half of the spiritual path. The Buddha corrected Ananda and said, no, it's the entirety. In other words, it's the foundation. And in the list of uh, spiritual prerequisites, the Buddha lists, first and foremost, Kalyanamita, wise spiritual friends, as the support for our spiritual growth. In the Idivuttaka, the Buddha talks about how important it is to choose one's friends wisely because, he says, we not only rely on the people we connect with, but we turn, in a way, into them. Our friends influence us, not just with their ideas, but we pick up mannerisms, we pick up... uh, behaviors. In the Yidivutaka, he literally, the Buddha was prone to sometimes extreme 
kind of images. And he says, if you wrap uh, something in um, a big leaf with a rotten dead fish, whatever it is you put in that leaf will take on the smell of the rotten fish. And he says, on the other hand, if you wrap something in a leaf that's filled with incense, then that will take on the smell of incense. So we, we are deeply reliant on others. Sadly, capitalism tends to validate the kind of rhetoric of self-sufficiency. And I deeply believe that this is why the images of even Buddhist practice that we like to present to the world is of the lone monk in a cave in the mountains, when in fact nothing could be further from the reality of not only the monastic life, but even the life of uh, the happy and healthy spiritual practitioner who thrive in community with each other. The great evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar likes to break it down as follows. He says the human mind is, uh, has three different tiers of relationships. The first tier is the tribe, the people that we see on a kind of regular basis. If you lived in new life for any extended period of time, it would be the, I don't know, 50 or 60, I don't know how many people are here, but that would be your tribe. The people that you see, they are people who appreciate that you are an active contributing member of a community. Then there's the core support group of five people, which Dunbar and some people call B people, which are the people that are the empathetic supports, those close spiritual friends that you are, uh, will hopefully share whatever emotional activation you're going through. You're, when you're feeling ashamed or when you're feeling uh, angry with someone in the community or when you're feeling uh, confused or when you're feeling uh, any emotion that you don't feel comfortable expressing to everyone, you have a group of five people that you can turn to, not for advice. Advice is a way we try to get rid of each other's emotional feelings, but for a safe container where you can express what's going on in your life. And finally, many of us also need that one person that we can rely on to be there when we are sick, uh, very often it's a sexual relationship, but it doesn't have to be. It's that person that we might pair up with. Dunbar puts this as not unnecessary, but the five people, the five people that provide us with key, open, attuned, reliable, emotional uh, support are. Now, the problem can be when we've been wounded in life, and we stop trusting the world of other people to hear our emotions. We've, been, we've come to believe that our feelings, impulses, and emotions are shameful. We 
we'll either avoid intimacy altogether or we might try to find one person to substitute for all the other people. That's when interdependence becomes codependence and that's when we set ourselves up for disastrous relationships because that insular relationship where we ask that one other person meet all our emotional needs for regulation, for empathy, uh, creates um, an unsustainable burden that cannot be upheld by anyone. So many of us have been wounded. It's not by any means suggested that this is inevitably the fault of one's caretakers. Some attachment psychologists even postulate the existence of what they call, I love this term, anxious babies. Babies that have completely attuned empathetic mothers, but still due to their own uh, neurotransmitter imbalances cannot connect with their parents. Sometimes in families there are grave socioeconomic pressures, sudden early disappearances of a caretaker due to death or to a divorce in the very first few years, like the first two years of a child's life, or two and a half years. So in these instances where there's woundings, people can look to bypass, they no longer trust other human beings to provide the necessary interpersonal uh, support to help us regulate and process our emotions, to share our secrets, to unburden our hearts. So the first choice in these cases is very often drugs or alcohol or workaholism or sex addiction or shopping. What we're trying to do is replace other people with substances to regulate and help us be with those painful emotions that most of us would healthily choose other people to talk about. Of course, this doesn't work. It's drugs, alcohol, substances, addictive behaviors cannot meaningfully help us process painful life experiences or difficult emotions. So eventually we bottom out and we might actually go to spiritual practice as a way to help us. And interestingly, in my experience, people often continue the, the unhealthy aversion to being vulnerable and intimate with other people. They come to me, a Buddhist teacher, and they say, can you give me a meditation where I can do and won't need other people? So it becomes just another bypass of intimacy, just another bypass of vulnerable, deep, real connection with others. And I've worked with people now for 20 years, and the work is always to gently disappoint them. There is no spiritual bypass to connection with other people. There is no magic meditation that I can give you that will allow you to live in complete 
lack of interdependence with others. And frankly, I'm glad that's not the case. Because not only how lonely would that be, but also how tragic would it be if sometimes early experiences and early woundings were essentially created the prisons that we live in for the rest of our lives. The healing work is not just internally mindfully connecting with one's difficult emotions, one's traumatic memories, one's charged impulses that we are scared of sharing with others. But the spiritual practice is only complete when we turn towards those people around us and we, in a safe way, learn to connect and learn to unburden our hearts. So there are four types uh, that we can break down people into. I know that there's, you've probably heard of all these different systems of, of, uh, of uh, categorizing people. Uh, in my research, I've only found one that meets the rigorous clinical tests of uh, where uh, they find that each time they give people this adult attachment interview, the results come out predictably the same. So I think of this as the most rigorous. Uh, they break people down into secure, anxious, avoidant, and unresolved. Secure people grow up with what's known as good enough caretaking, where they are trained to uh, expect reliable care. This doesn't mean that care is always there. In fact, the good enough mother, Fanegi's research suggests, is only actually available about 40% of the time that her child uh, runs to her or to the father. So it doesn't have to be a perfect parent, just a parent who's reliable enough that the child grows to expect uh, tolerance, attunement, which means the parent listens and doesn't interrupt, mirroring where the parent mirrors back the emotions and normalizes each emotion, even anger, even frustration, is normalized through mirroring. Then there is what's called anxious attachment, the child who grows up in a, uh, a relationship with a caretaker where that caretaker is unreliably available. Sometimes the caretaker is wonderfully attuned and responsive and tolerant and empathetic, but very often not available due to work or other commitments or to other stressors. But the key issue is that the child can't predict when the parent will be available and when they won't. There's no sense of reliability. And so this person grows up to expect abandonment in their relationship. And when they get into relationships, they are preoccupied with the other person and they drop their friendships and they try to get all their needs met by the significant other. They are wary of um, expressing their needs and terrified of, ex of expressing boundaries. The secure person uh, is willing to make sacrifices, is 
not willing to drop all of their friendships when they get into a relationship, but is attuned and available on a reliable basis. Unfortunately, if you're in the dating market, I've got bad, mood, bad news for you. Uh, people who grow up in secure families tend to wind up in long-term relationships. So they're not that often available on Tinder or uh, on uh, OkCupid or on dating sites because they, they often are in very long-term relationships. But I, I can explain to you how you can tell when there's somebody who's secure, if you would like to know. Uh, people who are anxious are constantly seeking reassurance and I've worked with anxious people for a very long time now and they are uh, people who will uh, in, it's quite understandable given their history of abandonment they will go through the blow by blow of what the other has done how they failed to connect or return their texts or whatever and will constantly seek reassurance. Is this normal? Is this right? Is he, is he or she trying to dump me? Uh, they're desperately trying to replay or rewrite their history because they tend to wind up in what's called repetition compulsion, the same relationship in adult life that characterized their early childhood. They choose people who are eerily similar to the caretaker that abandoned them. Avoidance are people who wind up uh, giving up on intimacy, and they essentially are satisfied with sex rather than any real intimacy. At the beginning, the avoidance feels like gold to the anxious because they're all interested and they're all very attuned, but the moment they get their needs met, they tend to disappear because they've grown up in engulfing families and engulfing relationships and they tend to then shut down and they hear other people's needs as invasive demands on their time. And uh, they are utterly confused. I once was at a table filled with avoidant men. <laughs> it's not unusual. In our cultures we unfortunately steer uh, men more and more towards avoidance behavior. And there was this guy, a friend of mine, who said uh, he had hooked up with a woman and when he woke up, he, he said she did the most crazy thing. And I said, what was that? And he said, she said, happy birthday to me. And I said, oh, well, was it your birthday? And he said, yes, but how, how unthoughtful is that? And I said, well, it doesn't really seem that unthoughtful. I mean, <laughs> Was it on your Facebook page? And he went, yes. But she should mind her own business. Uh, this was the epicenter of avoidance. Uh, they hear any kind of intimacy as intrusive and uh, expectational. Finally, the last group is known as fearful avoidance because they have characteristics of both are unresolved. And these are people who have often either been abused, abandoned, physically or sexually abused. Uh, the prevalence of drug and alcohol dependence in unresolved, fearful avoidant is about 90%. And the characteristics of these uh, individuals are 
that they tend to play come, go, come, go. The closer they get to love and intimacy, the greater the urge to flee and to run away. They, because the child who's abused uh, seeks love from the very person that's causing harm and causing injury, it creates an unwinnable traumatic game where we are constantly seeking love from people who are causing us harm. I grew up with an a, a unresolved relationship with my father, who was an alcoholic, and a secure relationship with my mother, which is why I've been able to be in long-term relationships, but at the same time, it's taken me years of therapy, 20 years of therapy, to uh, intimately connect with male friends, not based on the kind of macho posturing or the kinds of, you know, uh, withholding. And it took me working with one therapist, Robert Chodo Campbell, a Zen Buddhist, to reparent and re-change my expectation that men are not safe. So it requires, it can be done to change an attachment style. So uh, the key for anxious people is to avoid falling into a relationship to the extent that they lose their support and their connection with others. To not allow themselves to dissect the relationship when the other person is not present. To be clear in stating their needs and boundaries. Um, and for the avoidant, they need to lean into intimacy and to, we'll talk about some of the spiritual practices, but to relax their boundaries because the avoidant person has nothing but boundaries. They have, they're utterly unwilling to yield and to connect. So, but what about the social interactions, the non-relationship interactions, the community interactions that heal us? Um, Gottman, who's John Gottman, the great uh, therapist, uh, was uncannily capable of looking at small little interactions between people and seeing which friendships would thrive, which friendships wouldn't thrive, which relationships wouldn't and would thrive. And he broke down um, the keys to healthy, sustained friendships and interpersonal connections. The first is that friendships and relationships depend upon returning each other's bids for attention. Human beings are constantly bidding for the attention of others, sometimes overtly. Hey, can I talk to you about a problem I'm having? But very often, inadvertently, we're doing it. Hey, did you see this cat video on Facebook? <laughs> hey, did you... Uh, did you hear about this? Hey, look at the weather today. These might sound like insignificant small talk, but in fact, Gottman showed that relationships were 75% of the time we respond to somebody else's bids. It doesn't matter whether they're serious or whether they seem insignificant. Those are the friendships and relationships that endure. So do not dismiss somebody's bids for your attention as insignificant, even though you might deem the topic at first to be uh, 
less than interesting because as we'll, we'll discuss, people both consciously and unconsciously test each other to see how attuned and reliable we are. And people will not just immediately jump into empathetic, emotionally vulnerable places at first. They'll first talk about something perhaps insignificant as a way to establish a bond. Gottman suggests that there's three things that especially sabotage relationships with other people and with a community. The first is contempt. Viewing somebody else's experience or views as less valid or less worthy of hearing than our own. So even though you might hear somebody expressing a view that seems incredibly foreign and lesser than, you might, they might, heaven forbid, be a Republican. That's a joke. I'm a new. <laughs> but to, dis- to greet with contempt, is to essentially sever a connection. Contempt is, again, uh, viewing one's beliefs and one's experience as intrinsically superior to somebody else's. Defensiveness is becoming reactive and guarded when somebody is simply expressing their feelings. So, of course, it's understandable if um, somebody says, hey, you're a schmuck. You might want to say, oh, I'm not a schmuck. Why am I a schmuck? But if somebody says, when you turn away while I'm talking and that makes me feel unheard, and we become defensive and go, I didn't turn away, that, again, endangers the relationship. When people are stating their feelings, are stating their internal experience, it's important to not rebut it, to not tell another person that their feelings are wrong, that their perceptions are wrong. Somebody can feel something that I just do not uh, understand at all, but it's not my place, if I want to maintain the relationship, to tell them that their feelings are wrong. One of the exercises in becoming a Buddhist teacher that was so difficult for me is we would sit around and do group processing for years. And very often somebody would say, you know, this morning when you said this, it made me feel, it made me feel uh, un- unrespected and uncared for. And every inch of my body would want to say, no, I didn't mean that. What are you talking about? Grow a sense of humor. What's the matter with you? Can't you grow a thick skin? But... Over the work with uh, the, group, the teacher community that I was in, with 10 other teachers, that, that defensiveness when hearing somebody else's feelings being revealed uh, gave way to an appreciation that very often, without any intention, I can cause harm. Without any intention, I can uh, inadvertently make a person feel not heard. It's part of the human experience, and when we attune and listen, it doesn't mean that we agree that we're going to change. People are not, when they're sharing their feelings and emotions, they're not deep down. The most important thing is not changing. It's hearing them. Human beings don't 
most of all want to hear somebody say, okay, I will change for you. What they want is to somebody to take the time to listen and without defensiveness simply take in the feelings and emotions that are being expressed. In fact, in a relationship, I've found that the most powerful tool to bond two people together, friends, is that ability to, to simply mirror back what somebody is saying, which doesn't mean I agree with it. Kathy can say, oh, I don't feel you're hearing me in this conversation. And if I then repeat that back, I hear that you're not feeling heard and feeling seen. It doesn't mean I agree with that. It doesn't even mean that I'm going to necessarily hear better or tune better. But in simply repeating and giving her the right to express the feeling, she now at least knows that her experience is being validated to the extent that I'm receiving it. That's the most powerful tool. When we take the time, when we talk to each other, to just state back what the other person is emotionally conveying. It doesn't mean we agree. It simply means we've heard the emotions being communicated to us. Finally, stonewalling is withdrawing attention from the other. And you've seen it happen in your life where you start to become vulnerable or you start talking about something that's difficult or conflictual and the other person starts looking around, starts... Oh, look at the fan over there. Boy, that's great. They have fans. In this. You know, it's a, it's a desire to emotionally pull the plug from the connection. On the other hand, so these are the, again, contempt, judging our views or our experiences, superior defensiveness, becoming guarded or feeling attacked when somebody is expressing their emotional state and stonewalling pulling away, removing the attunement and care. Um, I would also add to that giving advice or directives when they're not being asked for. Part of my work is with uh, offering Buddhist counseling, mentoring for the last 11 years has been to <coughs> learn to pull back in that desire to say, you know, and to to wait, to not break that safe container where somebody's unburdening themselves until the direct request for insight or for any form of advice is directly asked for. Even if people are coming to me, and which I have, I work with a lot of people, but I don't, I still just create the safe container first. So uh, things that do bond are turning towards bids, setting time to manage conflicts. Uh, couples or friendships where conflict is not talked about are actually far unhealthier relationships than couples who do have conflict but set aside time to discuss and work through it. Couples that and friends that set aside a time to talk about relational disappointments actually are far more likely to endure than couples who say, we never fight. When I hear that, what I always hear is, oh, 
you've learned to sublimate all of your disagreements and thus the rest of your relationship is polluted by unspoken aggression and defensiveness. There is no such thing as friendships and relationships that are always an effortless attunement and agreement and, and psychological harmony. It does not exist. So some of the tools we can do, because all of this work is very vulnerable, is uh, a couple of things. When you come into new life and you are constantly going to, there's going to be a flow of people coming and going. You're going to be meeting people all the time. And to empathetically, vulnerably express sometimes difficult emotions uh, it's not a realistic request at first. There's generally, in my experience, a process, which is, one, uh, talk about first very common universal feelings with somebody that you can reliably expect other people to empathetically attune to. So when you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're having lunch with them or you're sitting by the pool or you're working with them and you, before you jump into revealing something that is uh, uh, where you could be wounded if they don't relate, first start out with, of course, the kind of, the really run-of-the-mill, oh, I love it when they have lasagna on Wednesdays. <laughs> you know, the kind of expressing something that you can, feel, you can feel assured that the chances of them being uh, attuned and receptive are rather high. Then, over time, when you see that that person, it doesn't matter if they like lasagna or not, they hear you and they say, oh, well, I like it when they serve the egg salad sandwiches the other day. So there's an immediately a, uh, a sense that the other person can hear, uh, not argue about your uh, emotional revelation and not, you know, uh, not break off the connection. Then we move into slightly more challenging emotions. Boy, I hate it when that tattooed Buddhist teacher guy gives all these dense psychological talks at night. Yeah, I hate that too. So we, we start talking about slightly more antisocial or slightly more risky emotions, and we're looking for the signs of attunement, that somebody stays available and attentive, that somebody doesn't immediately jump in and say we're wrong or become defensive, or become immediately directive, start telling us, how we should act or how we should feel, that somebody's giving us space to communicate. And then three, if you really think that you might have found that B person, that person that can be an, a, a real emotional support, you start moving into revealing those emotions that, or those impulses or those memories that you would definitely not feel comfortable having the bulk of people at New Life know about. But it's still important to have a group of people. You might not have five at first, you might have two. But that will be great, because the more you reveal and unburden, the happier you will be. The human mind is not meant to hold secrets. 
secrets, as um, Dan Wagner, the great Harvard psychologist, shows, are perhaps the most poisonous thing that a human mind can try to do to withhold uh, in, to withhold experience, feelings, impulses, desires from other people because it creates what's known as cognitive overload. We have the secret, but then we have to keep it re repressed and not expressed, and then we have to wonder if other people can see the fact that we're holding a secret. So this work is very important. Finally, last of all, and then I'll uh, open it up for any thoughts or questions, when we do work through a conflictual conversation where we have to say something that another person will not want to hear, particularly, we feel wounded by something that they've done. Um, it's really important to express it in, couch it always in one's internal subjective feelings. If we make you statements, you are a schmuck, you are insensitive, factual claims make people always defensive. I feel statements, if somebody t starts to tell you that the way you feel is incorrect, then we have every right to say, no, I feel this. This is the way I feel. I have every right to my feelings. So it's essential to couch conflictual conversations and I don't feel safe when you, etc. I feel uh, happy when you do this. It doesn't mean that the other person is obligated to change or do anything different, but they are obligated to hear your feelings and create a safe space. And last of all, the peak end rule, which is uh, Daniel Com one of Daniel Common's great um, tools. Um, human beings only really take away two things from interpersonal events. We take away the dominant emotional experience during a conversation, and we take away the very last moment of the conversation. So when we say something to another person like, I love you, but... <laughs> you laugh too loud. The... The end experience and the peak experience are both criticisms. The last thing they'll hear is a criticism, and the dominant thing they'll hear is a criticism. So it's essential to invert the order. Sometimes when you laugh, I'm sure Kathy will validate this, sometimes when you laugh, I hear it as really loud and startling. Just want to acknowledge that. But I say this because I love you, and I just want to let you know. <laughs> the ending it with reassurance and validating the relationship means the person doesn't just walk away having heard a criticism or a request. They'll also hear something that solidifies and cements the relationship. So always end with the cementing comment. Put the don't put the bad news after the but, because they won't hear anything before the but at all. 
So that's about it.